What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Belongs to me. Get out my world. It belongs to me. I just do the best I can. Hello, once again. I'm Kelvin. I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And you're listening to Get Off My World, a show brought to you by uh, three Doctor Who fans of a certain age who basically really love the classic series, and we like the new series, too. More or less, here and there. And we have our returning guests, the Seventeen, Christian hey. Erickson and Janie Winterbauer. How you yeah. doing? And our special guest host, Gabriela Santiago. Hi. Woohoo! As you may know, if you've listened to more than three or four of these episodes, uh, we get a little cranky sometimes about the world and Doctor Who, and so we'd like to start with something we call Temporal Grace, where we just discuss... Things that have made recently that have made us happy about Doctor Who. Uh, Who would like to go first? Well, I'll start. Thank you, Kelvin. There you go, Pat. I recently (laughs) read the news that the Seventh Doctor is going to return in comic book form, uh, written by Andrew Cartmel, executive producer of the last uh, the last couple seasons of the classic series, and executive produced by Ben Aronovich, uh, who was also a writer on the last couple of series of Doctor Who and wrote several very well regarded Doctor Who books. And illustrated by our own Christopher Jones, an old old friend of this podcast who we've known for a long time. So I'm very excited about this. I believe it starts uh, sometime later this year. It stars the Seventh Doctor and Ace. I think the first issue is out. Is it now? Yeah. Well, probably by the time this podcast is released, which will be in like 2021, (laughs) uh, it's it's probably been out. So anyway, uh, it's probably collected in in graphic novel form by now, so our (laughs) listeners should go out and read it. That's my temporal grace. I've been recently watching a lot of Doctor Who in tap rooms, because I enjoy that, and um, I have started to try to pair a local beer with whatever Doctor Who we're going to be talking about in a particular podcast. I was a little stuck on Revelation of the Daleks, which is what we'll be talking about toward the end, Um, and I just came up with this beer from Shells that just is called Dark. Because I think that <laughs> describes Can Revelation of the Daleks. Yeah, for sure. Daleks mm-hmm. very well. That's, that's Shell's Dark? Yep, Shell's Dark. That is dark. the only beer my wife likes. Wow. And so she loves Revelation of the Daleks. She, <laughs> she just sent me a picture today that she found it wherever she was at Total Wine, I think. Because oh, wow. you can't get that very many places. I did Shell's not know doesn't that. Have a huge this is extremely interesting to our <laughs> listeners, I'm sure, but it is literally true, and it's slightly shocking You're to really me that you, would, beer, that you would bring a Shell's Dark to well, this podcast. I mean, there are two more in the fridge for Pat's wife. And it pairs with Revelation of the Daleks? I think it pairs very Somehow. nicely, because it's dark. It's also Shell's, and 
they are very aware of their own history, as Revelation is also very aware of and plays on uh-huh. the history of Doctor uh, Who. There's a little meta textual thing there. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, All right. that's an very, improv very performer good. there. Top that, losers. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait. This uh, is positive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my temporal grace is. Um, I've become a little bit more aware of fandom, especially online, in the last couple of weeks for reasons that we'll discuss. And Doctor Who on Twitch, most people know, right? Twitch has started like running from the very original episodes all these things on their platform. And so for those who haven't experienced it, it's just like a regular Twitch stream where you're watching it. And then on the side is a constant stream of hilarious comments by mostly like young people and sort of like meme people. And so I don't know how closely you've been paying attention to, but uh, but literally an entire meme spawned mostly in the UK around London 1965 because of the scene where Ian and Barbara come back and say, we're in London 1965. Uh, but the one that I was watching that was the funniest was, um, sorry, I got to remember the name of the episode, uh, The Keys... Of Marinus. There's a whole episode where the doctor is uh, defending Ian in a court. You know, they're fading in and out of all these scenes of him, whatever. And some some commenter just wrote, sick legal montage. And and so I was like, this is actually the most amazing thing I've ever seen where you're watching a very slow-paced black and white show from the 60s that frankly moves at like a snail's pace and has a very predictable plot. And uh, kids are just like amped up about it. So anyway, so that's, that was the thing that I love. And I, frankly, I wish there were more hours in the day because I would watch it more. That's how I understand I'd like to add to that as my temporal grace that since Christian has been working on this record that we're going to be talking about at some point during this podcast, I have noticed this weird Zen-like calm come about him that I have rarely seen in the 20 years that we've known each other and been together. And it's almost like this Seriously, like a regenerative spirit <laughs> since he's thrown this music out into the universe. And I would like to thank Robert Holmes for writing that beautiful <laughs> Caves of Androzani so that this guy here can rediscover himself within the universe. Hey, of just connect him with some nerds, that's all. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> totally cool. The greatest nerdatory marriage counselor <laughs> in pop culture history. <laughs> Um, so I think my temporal grace is that recently I spent too much money in the dealer's room, a console room, and one of the things I purchased was my very own DVD of Downtime, a truly <laughs> underrated classic of beautiful cinematography. <laughs> We've discussed it on this podcast. Yes, we have. I just really love Downtime. I love all the actors in it. It's unnecessarily sad, and I enjoy that. And I'm glad that I will get to watch it and just nerd out. Slight bit of explanation here. Um, I have a tendency when I'm bored at work to to fall down wiki holes. Mm. I just go on Wikipedia and look at things, and for whatever reason, for like the past few weeks, I've been pretty obsessed with hoax and fraud things. And uh, the starting point for this was uh, reading about the Hitler Diaries, which was a big hoax in the 80s. And I was totally unaware of this, that ITV in 1991 made a mini-series based on the Hitler Diaries hoax called Selling Hitler. And get this, the, the guy who plays the main forger of the Hitler Diaries is Alexi Sale. <laughs> the guy who plays the head of the publishing company that produces Stern Magazine, which is where the Hitler Diaries first got mentioned, Tom Baker. And there's another guy named Thomas Wald. I don't know who that is in, in the story exactly. 
but that's Peter Capaldi. <laughs> and, uh, like, the main character is Jonathan Price, who I always love. And <laughs> this just killed me. Barry Humphreys, oh. who is best known for playing uh, Dame Edna. He plays Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and um, apparently it was released on DVD, Region 1 DVD in 2010, so it's out there somewhere, and so now I kind of want to see this. It's a five-episode miniseries about the Hitler Diaries forgery. I have to see this. Britain has 12 actors. Yes, Britain has 12 actors. <laughs> it is true. Barry Humphreys is Rupert Murdoch. Dame Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for our second round, as we like to do with all our guests, Christian, Janie, we're going to give you the mind probe. No, no not, not the, the mind, mind probe. probe. Yes, yes, the, the mind, mind probe. That <laughs> never gets old. <laughs> no. Not until it does. <laughs> <laughs> Janie and Christian, you've been our guests on this show before, but for the benefit of listeners uh, who might not have heard those earlier episodes or where you uh, have appeared, could you tell us a little bit about yourselves, um, your musical histories, your local musicians, among your other many talents? But uh, broadly speaking, how would you characterize yourself? Under the moniker The Seva Team, which we've used for about the last six years, we're technically a duo that makes electronic pop music. Although, recently we've done a lot of stuff with friends and occasionally put together live bands or whatever to play our stuff. Janie's the more famous one, so... That's a terrible word. (laughs) Let me just say, more accomplished as a performer. You're also wrong. With the suburbs, (laughs) and you were a part of Wits for a long time. Yes, yep, for six years there, which was a, you know, radio show that NPR and APM aired. It's funny, Christian and I, uh, the first band that we were ever in was called Astronaut Wife. There were three female lead singers. Christian wrote all the music. We had bass and drums. That was back in 1999. We met it playing in that band, and then we got married. Isn't that cute? Yeah. Cute. <laughs> and we had a couple of kids, and here we are. So she was the astronaut, and you were the wife, right? Yeah, yeah. Something. exactly. <laughs> so, I don't know, is that a coherent uh, bio? I think so. And in since then, you've uh, gone on, you've done other career-oriented stuff, but you've kept a musical collaboration going at, mm-hmm. under the name The Seva Team. That's how I first encountered you. It was on an album produced by Joshua's brother, Joseph. Uh, his Flawfest album, you did a song called uh, right. No One Can Hear You When You Crouch, uh, based on <laughs> Uh, Joseph's playing of the GoldenEye video yep. game, as I remember. Oh, yes. I remember listening to this album and going, oh, yeah, most of these bands are, are quite fun, but these guys I like a lot. <laughs> these guys are very cool. And Wait. so that's why we reached out to you to uh, appear on our podcast. This was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And since then, you've been busy. Like most things, you start a new thing and you have a lot of energy behind it and then you're focused on it. So I, I feel like I sort of dragged you into this. Um, at the very beginning, I was like, hey, we're going to write songs and I'm going to make a video for every single one and we're going to put something out like once every three weeks. And it was like this very, very ambitious thing, which actually I feel like we kept up for a little bit. Yeah, right? it was great. And then, uh, you know, like anything, then it falls by the wayside and then we would come back every couple year or so. Like mostly it was when other people asked us to do stuff. Like uh, one of the coolest things we did was we have a friend who does an annual uh, Bowie tribute radio show mm-hmm. on one of the local public stations, KFAI. Andy Warhol. And we mm-hmm. uh, recorded Andy Warhol. Janie has obviously been a a backup 
singer and lead singer in the Bowie tribute show that happens every year at First Avenue. So we have a love for Bowie, obviously. So anyway, so we we did these sort of um, sprinklings. Then we came on your program, and I happened to let it leak uh, that at one point I'd considered writing a rock opera based on the caves of Androzani. Well, you leak that over us and you know what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah, well, I didn't know. I didn't know because honestly, we didn't we didn't know each other really that much at the time. So You lit a fire under the guy, though. Yeah, so, <laughs> so and then I think uh, the people in this room sort of said you'd be stupid not to do that. That sounds like it would be really, really cool. And That then sounds I, like Kelvin. Yeah, and, and then when I happened to say, Listen well, I actually already started. Yeah, Like, well, I even have a couple songs already ready and it's sort of like half so anyway so then it was about another six months or so before a whole bunch of other things kind of came out there in the universe that kind of started making me think oh actually those guys are right maybe this is a cool um idea so then we were on your show again uh when we just brought a little music setup demos just yeah some like work in progress of the songs uh which was super fun and then now um, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. That was last November 2017 that we had the show at the Phoenix Theater. You guys performed some of the demos of the show, but the album seems to have come together pretty quickly. <laughs> Does it seem quick to you? Uh, I guess from the outside it seems from the fairly, outside, yeah. fairly yeah. It's fast. like watching a yeah. child grow. It's always quick if it's not yours. <laughs> yes. right? yeah. I think <laughs> maybe I'll back up, and for our listeners who don't know, this is a, a rock opera. I don't know if that's the right characterization, but it's a it's an album based on the Caves of Androzani, uh, the Fifth Doctor's last serial. It's a 16-track album. It just came out in uh, May 2018, which is a few months ago when this podcast is being released. Uh, all the songs are written by you, Christian. Yeah, yep. and Janie, you're on it on uh, most of the tracks, mm-hmm. I think, as well as a lot of other well-known local uh, Twin Cities musicians. Ed Ackerson, Jeremy Messersmith. Mm-hmm. Mark Mullen. Mark Mullen. Jeremy Olvisacker. From Detroit. We, we yes. Oh, see, yes. there we go. Because yeah. we're always trying to explain um, when people are like, you know, who all plays on it. And when I try and describe who Jeremy Ilvesacker is, well, you know, there's such a long list of credits that you don't know what to say. We have a birthday band together because we have the same birthday along with several other <laughs> local musicians. So every year in our birthday we get together and we just play a bunch of cover songs. And nobody can say, no, we're not doing that song because it's our birthday. There is a, this was a, so sorry, as an audience member of this, I want to, I want to vouch for this. So this has been going on for years. The band is called the 916s. They all share what is statistically the most common birthday in the United mm-hmm. States. You don't have to do much math to figure out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah anyway. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a September birthday. Okay, so, so anyway, it's just, if you don't want to think about what your parents were doing stop, around... Stop. You know, anyway, then don't, don't think about it. But, but it turns out that there are a bunch of very, very well-known and accomplished um, musicians in town that all share that birthday. And so they've had this band. And Jeremy Ilvesacker is one of them. He's also now also in the suburbs as the... Um, we're um, truly gu- brother gu- and sister. Guitar player. Um, so anyway, so it was both... Um, some great singers that we know and then also just some great instrumentalists that we had over to the house and we sort of formed the core and then let them talent, fill in the spaces talented friends come over and yeah. make noise including your son yes D- dominic sings uh back up on one of the on tracks track. on the Malman yeah. track yeah he himself is a very accomplished musician That's good. <laughs> so for our listeners who've not heard anything uh, from this album we're gonna play a song later in the podcast, but can you just tell us about a couple of the songs to sort of uh, whet their appetite to go download it? (laughs) 
So I would say just overall, we have a deep love of electronic kind of pop music, although it is like a rock opera in the traditional sense of like it tells a story and it's all these different kinds of song styles. It's kind of rooted in our pop electronica roots, I would say. But everything has a little bit of a different feel and some of them have kind of like guitars and some of them have um, synths. Each of the singers we got, we got to basically sing from the POV of a particular character, right? So Jeremy Messersmith, our friend, we he's a beautiful crooner, has a beautiful voice. I told him, you know, do you want to come sing the part of the doctor? He sang that. So everyone sort of has a different part. But Janie is the only one that actually sings technically two different parts. Um, and they're two of the more kind of like upbeat kind of pop numbers that are two of my favorites. One's called Spectrox, which I envisioned as almost like a jingle or a theme song for the invented um, sort of life-extending drug that's really the center of the economics, right, of the story. And then also as the seemingly minor but important character, Crow Timmon, who's the secretary to Morgus, because there was this great scene at the end where she turns the tables on him and says, I just turned you into the cops, and by the way, I took over your job, and everything, and we have this song called I've Taken Everything, which is literally <laughs> lyrically about this idea of, like, you're such a typical, powerful man that you think no one can overcome you, yep. but I just did it, and what now you What was you're, yours is mine. Yeah, and now you're, you're screwed, so I just really love the way that those two kind of, like, pop numbers turned out and you sang both of them well and you you had a hard time coming up with uh somebody to sing for the track that ultimately mark malman sang which is my favorite track so that was the last part that we quote cast because the song is called pay for this because there's a critical plot point where perry and the doctor get captured and then they get put in front of a firing squad and obviously in the story there's a whole bunch of complex sort of political reasons why that happens but in the show the general chelak is like this proper british soldier and he's just sort of like doing his duty and i just always thought dude if you were down in some caves on a alien planet fighting robots and all your men were getting mowed down in front of you every day you'd be insane and so like so we wrote it it's like kind of a pop song but it's got these really dark um, lyrics and it's really about this idea of like a frustrated kind of uh, military person so anyway so it took a long time to figure out like who do we know that's like wacky enough to do this like who just can really be like a real crazy person and I, I mean I've known we've both known Mullen for like 20 years or forever and for some reason he never popped in to into the conversation until very late on and then we sent him like the same kind of email that we sent to other people which is like hey this is going to sound weird but we're making this <laughs> album it's about a Doctor Who episode and it's this crazy part and he's like this insane general he's like sure dude yeah great great you know and so and you was, hope that means something yeah it, he ended up doing an amazing job and he did an amazing job and what was great was he kind of fulfilled a little piece of it um, creatively that was um, unique because I'm kind of a serious straight songwriter and then that tends to be people sort of sing straight and when I gave him the stuff he did completely crazy stuff with it like he, he literally does like an evil laugh in the middle of the thing <laughs> and I had presented it to him as this very straightforward song that was just like okay here's the melody there's a demo of me singing it which is very straightforward he dropped some theater on Yeah, him. and so he kind of got into this idea that it was this sort of theatrical thing. And so what's funny is, you, you remember, because I came out when you were sitting on the couch, and I was like, oh my God, I just got the tracks from Malman. You won't believe what he did. It is so genius. And then you 
plop it down there in the middle of like a bunch of more kind of like earnest things, it, like it literally kind of clicked the whole thing together. So that was probably too much of an explanation about all no, that. No, I, I don't think that's too much of an explanation at all because it encapsulates something that I think of when I listen to the album, which is that it's clearly all of a piece. Yeah. Not only is it based on a particular narrative, but each element individually, because you cast different vocalists for each character they bring their own elements to the entire thing so it does really feel like a sort of performance piece and it feels like a parallel performance piece to the Caves of Androzani story which is one of our favorites I think but it's an adventure story it's not one that has I think a lot of vertical depth to the emotionality of it which is something I think that I didn't know that anybody could bring anything new to the Caves of Androzani <laughs> yeah. after all these years. We talked about yeah. so much, we didn't realize that you needed to sing about it. No, I, I actually think um, the most common question that, that's come up um, since we released this is from Doctor Who fans who are like, Wow, would you ever consider doing this for another story, or like, are there other stories uh, that you know that you could sort of do this with? Yeah, exactly. It was like you, you can see it coming, but. But I actually was thinking about the fact that this is a, a rare story where, first of all, everyone except the two main characters is a bad guy, right? Like everyone, all their motivations are very clear and very deeply emotional. So some people on the internet actually who are real Doctor Who fans think it's hilarious slash cool that I wrote a song about Stotts, who's mm-hmm. a mercenary, oh, right? A dirty Stotts. mercenary. Yeah. And, the, and the song is just meant to capture this idea of like, yeah, I do bad stuff, but I'm just trying to make something out of my life, right? And that's not really the way that that character comes through in the show. Yeah. But when I was thinking about like my version of Stotts, it was like, yeah, he's just a guy trying to make his way in the world, man. Stop. You know, like yeah. he's just trying, to, he's just trying hey. to do a thing. So, so we turned it into this like pop rock number, and Janie sing, sings back up on it. And of course, my buddy Ed, who lives like literally across the street from here, um, is like, yeah, like t- three blocks down, um, is like just a real rock and roller I was like you gotta come you know kind of sing this part and uh, it is one of those stories where like all the characters are just really interesting and in a way the story doesn't reveal the depth of their Mm -hmm. emotional motivation the the way it's presented on TV but there's kind of an an implication Mm -hmm. like one of them is just motivated by greed one of them's motivated by revenge Perry's motivated largely by fear and confusion, right? Like they all have these, um, I think, very clear emotional notes that um, make for good songs. How has it been received? It is connected most strongly um, for a lot of reasons with um, Doctor Who fans um, and connected most strongly with Doctor Who fans in the UK. And I think one of the reasons for that was because the first person to retweet my announcement of it was Nicola Bryant, who's one of the stars of the episode. And it was just because some people had given me some idea. Joseph was one of them, actually, who said, well, you know, you should just tag people in, in Twitter. But I'm, like, a bit shy about doing that. But I felt like at least in this one case, it made sense to tag Peter Davison, who basically abandoned Twitter yep. Um, yep. last year, and Nicola Bryant, because they were the stars of it, right? So I wrote this thing, and I said, you know, we made this thing. It's from my favorite episode, and it starred these two people, and I tagged them. And the next morning, I woke up, and she had retweeted it and wow. said, oh, this seems cool. I, I don't know that she ever even heard it, but as a result, a lot of people in the U.K. found it, started passing it around themselves. And what was really, really interesting is that kind of like our friends over here, the fans over there is a very creative crowd. Like suddenly there was a lot of people that I was getting notes from that were like, 
I'm an actor. I'm a writer. I write fiction. I, uh, I, in one case, I write for Doctor Who, or I've written you Gareth Roberts, Gareth Roberts, or people like that who are just like fascinated by this, right? Because they couldn't actually believe that it was a real thing. That someone would go to the trouble. <laughs> that someone would actually go to the trouble of writing 16 songs about yes. something that, like, in retrospect, seems like a good idea, but for some reason no one had thought of it. So the reaction has followed this very particular path for a lot of people where the initial reaction is, this can't be real. In fact, some people have tweeted, I thought this was a joke at first. <laughs> and then the second thing is like, okay, I accept that this is real, but it's a piece of basically fan art, so it probably is not very good. Yeah. And in fact, I posted, I showed you, I posted a thing on Facebook where I had to convince a guy on Facebook to go, because he was like, I don't want to click on this and be disappointed. And so I was like, <laughs> I just engaged with the guy. I was like, look, you might hate it, but it's risk-free. Just go listen and see what you think. And then later he came back and goes, oh, this is pretty good, actually. So, <laughs> and so then the third, the third stage was like, oh, actually some people put some work into this. And like it's okay. actually wow. good and it's actually interesting. And it's a kind of a genre of music that I like. Um, and I think they maybe expected it to be a piece of D-grade um, fan homage to Bad something. pencil sketches. Yeah, exactly. Peter so, Davison yeah. profile. Yeah. So anyway, so I guess that's a, that's a long way around to say it's just been good, but it's also just been interesting. It's revealed to me that there are people who still carry a torch for that episode and for that show, especially in the UK, to a level that I guess I had... Kind of forgotten. And Doctor Who fandom is its own world, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always it's, been there, and it's still there. I know. I just you know interesting you, corners. Got a message from a, a guy the other day from Ireland that you brought tears to his eyes. Yeah, no, the Irish cry very. Yes, they do. Cry. But still. but they can make you cry. No, I, I. It's true. It's true. Actually, like if I want to get touchy feel a bit about it, we've gotten these notes from people that are just like. This makes me very just emotional as a fan that mm-hmm. someone would create something like this that I would love so much that I think to your point was like a reinterpretation of something that they were already kind of familiar with. And then to have it presented back to them in a, this kind of um, shockingly different way, um, it connects on a music level, but it also connects with something else that people really, really love. So Those things don't ever intersect they don't usually intersect yeah like we both obviously we do a lot of music and stuff and people like it i think we're in likable things but when you're able to then cross what you do with something else that other people also really love you're tapping into like multiple emotions and so that was the deal with this kid because he said first of all i love like electro pop music so i would basically i would love what you did it had nothing to do with this and the fact that you've then crafted it into this other thing that i love um was like super powerful so i feel fortunate to have somehow tapped into those people we should remind our listeners that this is something that you can listen to with no obligation whatsoever because it's on the seventeen.com website and donate what you want and all the money goes to doctors without borders The songs, if you want to hear them, are on YouTube. I think on uh, Spotify and stuff as well. So test it out. Please give some money to Doctors Without Borders and support the SEVA team and their project. All right, round three is Special Topics Dalek. And I believe the SEVA team have brought a Dalek to us. They've hunted (laughs) it down and (laughs) captured it. And maybe cuddled it a little bit. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um... No, I think uh, just given the conversation we were just having, I guess what I would love to hear more conversation about is really the subject that you brought up really about um, 
fan art and fan um, tributes. I don't know. Did I word that as a question? It's a, it's a topic. Mm-hmm. It's a the topic. author is dead. Fan creation is great. Yeah. <laughs> you can expand on that if you want, but that's pretty much my yeah. view. I have a much more troubled view of that sort of thing. Um, I guess maybe I'm more tied with the old modernist idea that the author is, it's James Joyce or whatever, and he's doing his thing, and anything else that uh, someone might do is maybe parasitical to that, and that's a cartoonish version of the attitude that I happen to hold, because certainly there's plenty of fan art out there that I like and I appreciate. But that idea that there is a central creator who has an individual vision of what his art is going to be is kind of fundamental to the way that I do things. And that's stretches from the early James Joyce stuff that I read as a teenager to people like George R. R. Martin, who are very protective. Um, like, you know, George won't allow fan fiction to be written mm-hmm. in Westeros because right. it's like, this is my world. Don't fart around in it. I am doing this. At the same time, I appreciate many, many things, like your album or any kind of other fan art, especially related to Doctor Who, because that has such porous boundaries to the outside yeah. fans and professionals. There isn't really a There's distinction in Doctor, Doctor Who. Who that was open source long before that. Well, <laughs> and so because just, just to challenge you with your own mm-hmm. words, so when we were on the live show, you did talk about the fact that like you have this mythology that's so big at this point that no single human can actually consume all of it like you you would have to be listening to things and reading things like all, all day what's so interesting to me about doctor who is you have people who grew up as fans mm-hmm. that actually shape it now peter capaldi was literally uh, doctor who fan number 1 yeah. right yeah. in the uk when uh, he was a kid right and so you've got lucky um, guy yeah i know <laughs> um, i just think about like is there sort of an exception in this case where you've actually put the um, what's the word i'm looking for is this the bananas uh, no, no, you, you yeah. actually put the... Uh, yep, he's right, though. The, the banana. I was looking for the analogy about turning over the asylum to the... Inmates running the asylum. The inmates. It's like you, mm-hmm. you have the mm-hmm. inmates running the asylum where Doctor Who is concerned because so many fans actually have an influence mm-hmm. on the work. So is it Well, I think also the disparate voices of fandom match the way Doctor mm-hmm. Who was created and has been. It is this tapestry yeah. of different authors, their contradictory worldviews, above and beyond the just continuity contradictions throughout it. It is this just yeah. huge playground for people to work things out. I think it's one of the reasons that you don't see a lot of the hate and bile that you see in the Star Wars world because it yeah. has always been a closed yeah. world, right? It's George Lucas's set of trilogy movies and he made these bad ones and depending on my mood I'll maybe take one or two things from that that I like and then to see people take it and play with it and do something different with it. I think some of the responses to the Last Jedi is almost how some people respond to fan art. Yeah, like yeah, uh, exactly. how dare you make yeah. that your own? Exactly. And Doctor I, Who I doesn't suffer true. from that yeah. because I, yeah, it's just I, always been part. of I really of haven't Doctor seen a Who. lot. I mean, I could be wrong, and I could be just my social media curation is just top notch or something. But I, I really haven't seen a lot of griping about Jodie Whittaker. For I'll example. send you some links, Calvin. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. until I got involved in UK Twitter as a result of this. Thing. I mean, it's very few. Most people are like way into it, actually. I don't think 
if you've been a fan for a long time, that the reaction to, say, Jodie Whittaker was any worse than the reaction to, like, Colin Baker, when they were like, that guy's a fat guy, and he's, like, not a good actor. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, like, you're right. It's not the same as, like, Star Wars people are so protective of their thing. I I don't know when when my big revelation about this was, but um, I, I realized, like, asking a show to do what it did to me when I'm 12 is impossible. It's physically, biochemically impossible. <laughs> I don't have a 12-year-old brain anymore. You know, I don't have that same kind of impressionability. It's, it's not going to be quite the same thing. And that doesn't mean it's bad. And, and people I put, still think it's Stephen Moffat's fault. No. <laughs> I, I will say, can I just, no, because you brought up, I know, we're, I know I'm really drifting way off topic. It's your topic. But, we won't judge you. But no, but to what you were saying, because you brought up Star Wars... When I saw Solo, I know a lot of people are like crapping on that movie or saying, I love Solo. It, I, I literally turned back into a 12 year old. When he hands him the blaster and is like, Here's your gun, kid, or whatever. And I was yeah. like, Oh my God. This is like. <laughs> I was in the, the UK. I haven't seen it. I know. I was I was like, this is the no, movie. No solar, this was the movie stars. that went on in my head as a child. And frankly, I'm having that same experience now with like these old Doctor Who fans because as a result of the album, where they're still deeply obsessed with things. And even the Twitch now, like they've gone into the Pertwee era on Twitch. So last night, Inferno was running on Twitch, which is another one of my. We've talked about this. Another one of my all-time favorite ones. And watching live Twitter in 2018 lighting up over. Inferno and like specific scenes and like calling out specific dialogue, it's just like this weird kind of experience that actually does kind of take me back to like, oh, maybe the problem was me. I got emotionally uninvolved with. I think that's what you were trying to say yeah, about like me being like happy all of a sudden. It's because like I got emotionally uninvolved in something that actually I should have invested more feelings in. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. I also felt like a 12-year-old watching the solo movie again, right. but I think there's a difference between expecting and demanding that yes. as opposed mm-hmm. to like yes. appreciating it yeah. when it happens. Exactly. And like, I never really connected with the original Star Wars movies. Like I'm like those are fun. I'll yeah. watch them again yeah. sometimes, but like cool. the new ones, I'm like so into them because totally they're just agree. like characters that look like me, characters I yeah. identify yeah. with, exactly. so much exciting mm-hmm. stuff happening. People actually talking about feelings. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, my dad didn't even bring me to the second. What was it, eighty? That the second yeah, one came out. Yeah, because yeah, he thought I would be bored. Oh. He went several times. Oh. So, okay. oh, she's not gonna like this. Gatekeeping. Oh. He was gatekeeping. No, oh, <laughs> absolutely. Good. But so, like, that was certainly my experience. It's like, oh, Doctor Who's on it's Channel Two. It's eight p.m. Time to go to bed. Like, there was never any, any of this fostering. So I do like these new ones because it is more inclusive in general, and, and it draws you in whether you have the mythology, like, built into you from the time you're very young, yeah. you know? So we moved on a little bit from talking about fan yeah, art to <laughs> art that is created within the same universe that has lived long enough to have, uh, you know, Doctor Who or Star Wars be created by a generation of people who have grown up on the original, too. So, let me revise my initial point and say that, I mean, in in cases like this, I think that's all for the good, right? If there's something that's ongoing like this in a vast narrative, I would really love to see all the old stuff kind of cycled out and new stuff cycled in. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's interesting that the concept when we were kids, in testament to the fact of how fandom has taken over the concept of what is in canon 
that didn't really exist when I was, you know what I mean? Like when the infamous Star Wars Christmas special came out, Lucas didn't go on TV to be, this is not canon. You know, like that wasn't really an issue, I right? canon yeah. arguments I, on the playground I, that night. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so like, now that happened. The thing. <laughs> things that really changed with DVD box sets and yes. putting stuff on the internet. Because yes. suddenly you could yeah. have longer arcs. Yeah. You had to have callbacks because people were For watching sure. it all at once and they weren't forgetting what had happened last week or last year. Yeah. We had this conversation just the other day because so one of my favorite Doctor Who characters is Frobisher, the penguin, from the comic books. You and I have had this conversation, and you said there's a big finish audio in which Frobisher is a featured as a main character, and it's actually one of the great ones. And so then I asked the question, wait, does that mean Frobisher is actually a canon companion, right? Because then I was just picturing this world where, like, you could consider that anthropomorphic penguin yeah kind of in the same way that you consider like the, the real companions and it was a weird blurry line like okay well it's technically <laughs> a BBC approved property right mm-hmm. they've licensed it out but is it is it actually part of the story Th- there's not? a lot that's been written about this okay. in Doctor Who studies Maybe I need to read if, it. I, if I can dignify it with the name Doctor Who studies <laughs> or whatever but, uh, but uh, one of the things about Doctor Who is that it never had a, a story bible the way that Star Trek did uh, original right. series or next generation did and so it was it was always sort of reliant on the idea that we just all kind of remember that there are Daleks and Cybermen and things like that, and maybe we saw those episodes. So for most of its rickety history, it was just kind of doing that, and that's why there's a billion continuity errors and there's five Atlantises or whatever it was. <laughs> and then by the time you get to the 80s, you have a generation of people who have grown up who are kind of resistant to that, and so John Nathan Turner and Andrew Cartmell allow into their orbit people like Ian Levine who are the fan representatives, the people who know what there is to know about Doctor Who, and they I I think it's safe to say put a kind of bucket of cold water over the whole thing because they're just too focused on continuity and then that devolves. Continuity is great because it creates a universe but then when you can't break out of it, like I love iconoclasm in a lot of ways and one of my favorite things about J.J. Abrams is he did exactly the same two things to the Star Wars universe and the Star Trek universe, which is in the very first retelling of the story, he immediately blew up the central planet in the mythology. When I saw that in uh, Force Awakens, I was like, didn't we already see this in the Star Trek movie? Where they're like, you know, it bugs me that there's this planet that everyone's just focused on all the time, so I'm going to blow it up in the movie. And then when he took over Star Wars, he did the same thing. And actually, I kind of love that. If you're going to make it your own thing as a storyteller and as a creative person, you might as well make it your own thing. Rewrite the rules, and of course people are going to be mad at you, and people are going to be mad when Jodie Whittaker takes over as the Doctor, and they're going to be mad when you know the next Star Wars comes out and it has, still has Rose in it. But it's like, that's their problem. The creators are doing what they think is the right thing to do, and I, I'm kind of into that. So for our round four, our wonderful A-functionalism round, we have some things to pitch to you, Janie and Christian. So we know that sophomore albums can be challenging. Uh, You know, fans want more of the same kind of thing, but they don't want a carbon copy, and sometimes you have to struggle for ideas. So we're going to pitch you some ideas for your follow-up to the caves. 
Okay, I think we all have something going on here, by which I mean Kelvin and Joshua and me. So, Kelvin, <laughs> do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I had a concept for a rock opera based on the invasion of time. A classic. <laughs> Uh, on the order of the caves of Androzani. Yeah, I had like a, a slight sample of some lyrics here for uh, when the Suntarans first appear. Yeah, in, very it, dramatic scene. Yeah, it's very a dramatic big, scene. It's a big reveal. They appear like just on the steps of the citadel. After the Vardens disappear. After the Vardens disappear. And they're like coming down the steps and it's very jets and sharks. <laughs> like West Side Story. <laughs> they like snap their fingers on either side like, you know, this. You know, as they're coming down the stairs. Can they actually reach fingers. their arms around that, that <laughs> yeah, side? Yeah, kind of. The twist thing. But, and they yeah. only have like three fingers, so it'd be a little weird. So but that's loud, like a rifle shot. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I think they could do it. And the lyrics would be something like this. Ooh, ooh, we are Centaurans. Ooh, ooh, we're gonna boogie. Ooh, ooh, we got big round heads. Ooh, ooh, we'll give you noogies. Ooh, ooh, Santar, ha! Ooh. Ooh, Santar, ha! Ooh, ooh, Varden's na! Ooh, ooh, Varden's na! Ooh, ooh, Santar, ha! Ooh, ooh, Santar, ha! Ooh, ooh, Time Lord's na! Ooh, ooh, Time Lord's na! Dig it! Are you just giving it them for it, free? Yeah. That is some inspired... I, I, I was sweating over this for hours. No, right? no yeah. I gotta just say, no Rutan's disc, though? I feel like there should be a Rutan's disc track. There should have been a Rutan's disc, disc, track, disc yeah. A Rutan's disc track. Okay. I, I went a little bit of a different uh, route here for my pitch, because I'm thinking that there's a whole Weird Al type of approach to this <laughs> uh, next Doctor Who album you do. I think that there's a lot of people primed for that. And so I was thinking of something like... The power of crawl to the power of love. The know? Huey Lewis song. The Huey yeah. Lewis song. Yeah. The power of crawl is a curious thing. Makes a one fan squee, makes another fan cringe. Turn a geek to an internet troll, more than bad TV. That's the power of crawl. <laughs> Dumber than time flight, lame like corks. It's clear Robert Holmes didn't give a fark. Make a stupid puppet, make some tentacles. Power of crawl so bad the mind boggles. Crappy direction, costumes too. It's like Tom Baker bought the whole crew booze. It's cheap and it's lazy and it's racist sometimes. Yes. But boy, Mary Tam looks fine. Oh my That's God. the power of crawl. There's more, but uh, you'll have to make me an offer before you. <laughs> we can literally record that one tonight. Please send me that. We will. We'll do some under the table. Too. That's. <laughs> Well, that's that's hard to beat, Joshua, Kelvin. Uh, but, uh, I want to make the case for a rock opera version of the Talons of Wang Chiang, which I think we should call Talons. Okay. Talons! Ex exclamation point. Talons! It'll look, it'll look good on 7th Avenue yeah. and Broadway. Mm-hmm. I'm not a composer, I'm just a librettist. Oh. So, Josh, if you don't mind, just for the purposes of this demo, could you maybe drop in something appropriate from, like, Turandot or something? Sure. Or, no, yeah, 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 you're I not going to... I already probably, have it queued up. You're not probably okay. going to do that, are you? Are you are we, okay, so it's going to be me making armpit parts, yeah, uh, Acapella, then. Thanks for making me look like an amateur in front of Janie and Christian. All right. All right. So, but... Talents... <laughs> You know my name, it's Magnus Greel. But you don't know the way your body makes me feel. 
<laughs> I'm glad you came, so please step in and to my magic oriental den of sin. Oh. Step by this trap and this gigantic rat, and in your knickers step into my cabinet, and I will tap your Zygma source. And though you're not my type with muscles like a horse, uh, it gets a little more erotic from here, so I'm not sure if that's too inappropriate for an all ages podcast. That's amazing. Oh, yes. I feel like also, also points for hitting on the bizarrely sexy angle instead of the <laughs> instead of the overtly racist angle which was yeah. how the how the much of the original is interpreted now yeah. Yeah. epic sexiness distracts from everything right yeah, it's yeah, the exactly. 21st century exactly. <laughs> that was the idea behind ghost in the shell anyway Sorry. so perhaps we should end this round with an actual song from the actual seva team from their actual album the caves i would crash this ship to save my friend.
And now round five, the randomizer. Except it is not really random because our guests have brought us an episode. And uh, what have you chosen? The Sixth Doctor Adventure Revelation of the Daleks. Ah, yes. (laughs) I know it well. Introduced like a late night NPR jazz program. (laughs) I guess. It was. That's exactly right. (laughs) Welcome to Tranquil Repose. And my sweaty balls. (laughs) Don't you think that the Alexei Sales character should have been more like an NPR host talking? Like Ira Glass? Yeah. Okay, anyway, sorry. I'm just, oh God, now I'm picturing Ira Glass in that part. That'd be amazing. So, So let's say that you're dead. So and you're just you're just sitting there. Just you're, pretend you're that you're dead. <laughs> but now there's but there's something really unusual happening. <laughs> like maybe there's Daleks. So how would he kill the Daleks in that scene? It would be like ultrasonic pregnant pauses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have we set this up correctly? Season twenty-two. It's yes. Sixth Doctor uh, and Perry episode, mm-hmm. directed by Graham Harper, written. And script edited by Eric Sayward. It was interfered with to some degree by John Nathan Turner, uh, who I believe insisted on the giant gravestone marker of Colin Baker that collapsed for no reason and did not kill the doctor. Mm-hmm. I think that was an image that uh, JNT wanted in the show. I've heard that. That was JNT's idea? Yes. Okay, see, I'm already learning stuff that now, years, decades later, (laughs) infuriates me. (laughs) Uh, Because it does not add anything, I think, to make the the great cliffhanger. Okay, I'm going to put it on the table right now. (laughs) Okay, put it on the table. This is one of my favorite Doctor Who episodes. I'm not arguing that it's one of the best. I'm arguing it's one of my favorites. You're just flopping out there. (laughs) It's maybe the best single example I can think of of a Doctor Who story that really grew on me over the years. I think when I first saw it, I couldn't really process it very well. Why is there the weird DJ doing 60s and 50s stuff? (laughs) What's with the... uh, the weird unrequited love thing between like the really massively unlikable mortician <laughs> and the the weird mousy woman and like what okay is this? so yeah th- so that was one thing so we watched this the other day and so one thing that struck me was the mortician what's the name uh, of the character oh Joe Bell Joe Bell yeah. you kind of like what was the point of that character like he doesn't <laughs> do anything. Yeah. Unless I'm missing something that he You did. are not missing anything. <laughs> okay. There's nothing necessary in this story. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I think, a very intentional subversion. It is 80s Doctor Who doing 80s stuff. This is Doctor Who doing RoboCop, doing Repo Man, doing uh, Max Headroom. It is all that sort of dark in, yeah. comedy Intentional tone. subversion. This is Eric Sayward doing Caves of Androzani yeah. in Crayon. That's what it is. Uh, <laughs> do you think he's actually attempting to do that? He's yeah, attempting. He's, so. It's an homage to uh, yep. Robert Holmes, but I don't think it's Caves of Androzani specifically <laughs> oh, by any that. means. Yeah. I think It's oh. the corrupted world that the Doctor drops into and the Daleks drop into, and I think very intentionally, I don't think it's incompetence, I think it very intentionally, they do not play a part in this. They are these visitors in this almost other show. Yeah, it's very gracious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it, you you aren't the, filled with dark joy watching this I, um, at all? 
I am. I love it. I'll pass it off to you in just a sec, because I, I feel that it is the Diamonds Are Forever of Doctor Who. Uh, so the... The, That's a little harsh. You're going to have to... On, wow. on which? Uh, diamonds are forever. <laughs> on Doctor Who. Yeah. It's full of bits mm-hmm. that are really interesting and very memorable that don't cohere in any real way whatsoever. You know, it, it took a while for me to process the weirdness of it. Like, yeah, yeah it's a planet... That's just one big mortuary. <laughs> this is literally what the planet is. It's like the world's biggest funeral. And not the only one, because according to the Sarah Jane Adventures, there's just a planet full of vulture people who are just all morticians. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, there's there's going to be a lot of there's dead some people in, in there. So to your point, honestly, I think it's great. If I think about it, maybe it's mostly aesthetic things that mm-hmm. I love. So... When you see the glass Dalek, that's amazing. When you see Davros's head in that weird thing that like turns around, that's cool. Orsini and the sort of cool sketches of characters. I had fond memories of it, and when I watched it again, I liked it just as much. But the collapsing gravestone thing was one of the two things that stuck out at me as like, I don't understand what the point of that is. (laughs) The point of it in this (laughs) is that Davros set it up as just a big F you to the doctor. And I agree. It's ridiculous. But I I think (laughs) what I enjoy about this is just Eric Sayward letting you be as close to the process and his feelings (laughs) while keeping it really entertaining. JNT is Davros, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. He's like, Davros made me put up this pointless statue here. He even has the Sixth Doctor say, this is a theatrical, this is a grotesque. And right. even the Sixth Doctor complains about the absolute pointlessness of this statue dropping on him. I mean, okay, like so within seconds you now of getting up. that that's genius. It, it is like wonderful that we ball. see the process being enacted on screen. Yeah. But as far as an actual drama, I'm not sure that I can. Uh, but this is what I love about Doctor Who, it can sidestep into this, and I would never advocate that all of Doctor Who should be like this. But I think this is... Thank (laughs) God! Oh, God! I'm saying, I feel like it is just entertaining from every single moment on screen. And there are better Doctor Who stories that I don't find as entertaining from second to second to just watch. I can't believe that you are the postmodernist tonight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's not usually what happens. Compared to me. Yeah, um, well, like, this was kind of like a weird aha moment when I finally read this. But apparently on some <laughs> level, it's a parody of The Loved One by Evelyn Waugh. Yeah, I know. I've read that, too. On some level, the big thing about The Loved One is that it's a, a satire of the American funeral industry. Yep. Mm-hmm. Where it's, like, all way overdone and yep. overproduced and, and weirdly vulture-like. And I think there's some kind of love triangle between a, unlikable people. Yeah, there's the thing that it, we yeah. don't get, because yeah. we don't have the cultural background. Yes. Yeah. If it's based on a American funeral practices, we're like, yeah, that's normal. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The Brits are probably like, that's ah, what, what the hell? It's yeah. like, creepy as hell. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> weird. Like, what, what do you guys do? You do this for real? Yeah. So let's dial back. How about the story itself? This is a period in Doctor Who history where there are two 45-minute episodes. Mm-hmm. And the first one... The Doctor and Perry are just not there. 
they're not in the story at all. We just establish the rest of the people, and then they're just trying to get over the wall. It's been like a half hour going over the wall, or whatever. And the thing falls on him. And then the, the thing falls on him, or, or whatever. But I think one of the reasons why I picked this one and why it has that like Robert Holmes thing um, is there's this ensemble thing of like a bunch of really really interesting characters, and I just think it was cool the way that it unfolds and they sort of intersect at the various points. But that was why actually the Joe Bell thing I was like. I feel like they killed that character off a little too soon in the story. It didn't seem to like have like a huge impact. Well, one of the things on I love about that is that we see the pettiness of Davros, and that's part of the satire of painting Davros almost in this sort of corporate setting when he's schmoozing with Kara and her assistant yeah. and he like just making bad not jokes. Be in that setting. No, and, then, oh. and those, that's my favorite parts. Those are my favorite parts. This is Treebacher or whatever her name is in, Passing and it, it kind of it's almost like he's giving her like a job review. He's like, yeah. I really like your yeah. attitude. And, yeah. and, and, and this all becomes this petty thing. He wants her to become a Dalek. And he can easily just make whoever he wants in there into a Dalek. But yeah. he's like, he wants to enjoy watching her take something that she loves and kill it. Yeah. And so the pettiness of Davros's head <laughs> as he demands these things of people, it's just fun. And that way I think it is just this sort of playground of Doctor Who things turned up 20 notches uh, in its most extreme level. It's just, cannibalism. It just, it's exploding hands. It's, it, yeah. it, it, it's it feels insane. like Eric say we're doing exactly that to the entire show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just gonna disintegrate you. <laughs> I'm just gonna interrogate you and dissolve you. It's just, yeah, like, I, I, it's it's just <laughs> what kind of makes me feel positively about it is that it is pretty much the last Dalek scenario I would ever have come up with on my own. <laughs> Okay, the, the Daleks are running, a, running a funeral a, an enormous parlor. funeral home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in general, yeah, let's, let's I tend to prefer Dalek stories where the Daleks are at a low ebb, where they're trying to rebuild, rather than like this enormous, invincible galactic army or whatever. This is pretty low. Oh, I really love the body horror in this episode. Mm-hmm. There's a like, lot of it. I'm always here for the body horror. <laughs> and, you know, the characters... I, like, enjoy the individual characters, and they don't, like, really gel really well in their storylines, but I could forgive that if it weren't for the DJ. Yeah, I know. Like, the DJ opened his mouth the first time, and I was like, what is happening? <laughs> and then I kept watching it, and I'm just like, I have very few notes in this episode. Half of the notes are, punch the disc jockey in the face, and all exclamation points. So when he dies, if, do you, did you well, cheer? Yeah. Like, if yeah. I were in suspended animation listening to that DJ, I would welcome being made into a Dalek dis- so I could dis- exterminate He destroys everything. a Dalek Him with first. a ray gun powered by rock and roll. That was cool. <laughs> I liked that How part. can you beat that? If he hadn't spent five minutes with a terrible American actor yeah, yeah, just yeah. saying the most annoying things possible. Is this as bad as the Alabama yokel in the first Doctor serial? <laughs> Maybe. Oh. Maybe it's worse. No, that was worse. Alabama yokel. One of the things I really like about the DJ is that he is legitimately obnoxious. Even Davros looks for an opportunity, and he's basically yeah. says, "And while you're at it, will you kill that?" DJ? Yeah, I, that was a, one of my, my favorite lines. And the thing where he turns around, where he's doing those uh, those monologues, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Suddenly, everyone here sees and knows too much." Like, that hasn't been going on the whole time. Um, here's my love-hate thing with that. The concept of this idea of you have a DJ that's there to project mm-hmm. to the dead. In the modern age, you had people building startups that would 
tweet about you after you die, right? Like there was that weird thing where you could set messages for when you died. It yeah. would send out messages and crazy stuff like that. So it's actually oddly realistic. It is, however, strange to me that someone who is known to be pretty funny as an actor mm-hmm. and has been in a lot of funny stuff to be so bad at an American accent that, that to me the most surreal scene in the whole thing is him and Nicola Bryant talking Bonding about like their bad accents. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you were from the states. Oh, oh. yeah, I love those. You know, it's yeah. like these very stilted, but very unrealistic yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, things, yeah. and. It still kind of makes me laugh, but it, it's conscious, though. But it's likable at the time. Yeah, they're calling it out. Yeah, uh, yeah. Alexis Sale would have been on the Young Ones. People would have known him from yeah. the Young Ones for I, a long I, time. I love Alexis Sale like yeah. so much, and I think that's partly why I kind of am weirdly affectionate towards the DJ, even though there's no <laughs> well, he's, remote reason. He's, he's very famously he's a brilliant. Left, he's a left he's wing a comedian. Oh yeah, comedian. Yeah. He's a brilliant actor. This was part of JNT like. We're going to uh, have a kind of vacuum thing where we're you know, just kind of getting anyone around who could possibly appear on Doctor Who to appear on Doctor Who. And so here it's Alexi Sale, it's Eleanor Braun, yeah, uh, uh, William Gaunt, um, uh, actress uh, who was Ruby on uh, Upstairs Downstairs, who was, yeah, yeah. Tassim Becker. Which yeah. is funny because Davros always says Tassim Beaker, which I can only picture Beaker from the Muppets. <laughs> 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 Anyway, so almost, yeah. almost, almost everyone be would have been casting. recognizable to a British mm-hmm. audience at the time as like, oh, I saw those people mm-hmm. on shows that I've seen before. It's also elevated to me by Graham Harper's direction, and there's so many great scenes, the way he approaches them. The murder of Jobel, just the way that is staged, the running up the stairs and the weird thing where the attendants come down and he goes shoes them away and the different camera angles and his flop down as the toupee comes off his head in his dying yeah. moment and it's the shot from above where Tessenbacher is being recruited by Davros and she turns away from him and then the Dalek is just right in, yeah. in her face. In her face. And there's just tons okay, of so little things like that. So you reminded me actually... One of the things that I was a sucker for during those eras, and this one is no exception, is just the use of sound and music and sound effects. Like that scene you were talking about where she stabs him. It was very like... (laughs) Just sort of super abstract um, music that I thought was really, really cool. So like, even though JNT was kind of a weird maximalist... I think all those. I think all those. I, well, no, I, I got actually. I got into a conversation on a podcast in the UK about like what would happen if JNT had Twitter, and like like what a what a different world that would have been. Like if he had been the showrunner in the era of Twitter, because you know he would have been uh, uh, just a mess, right? Or just like a crazy kind of character. But anyway, but I think they they had a way of like you were saying from the visual direction, the art direction, and if, if I think about all the stuff that I really love about that, like. Like the story, like the character, but the visual direction and then like the music and the way that sound and things were used in that, I thought was really, really cool. And that it was kind of within that whole era was really, really cool. So, yeah, I 100% totally get people who really can't tolerate this episode. To me, it's one of those interesting things. I've read a lot of takedowns, I've talked about it with other people, and 
I agree with every criticism of it. Yeah. It just happens that I'm like, yeah. yes, that's awesome. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. that's terrible. Yeah. It is like the last Jedi of Doctor Who. Because exactly. it's like, <laughs> yes, what you, know, you like, say like, is true. And, and I think that's why great. it's awesome, yeah. or I think that's why it's <laughs> terrible. Because um, love, love is a choice. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another one for us, folks. Uh, we'd like to thank, again, the Seva team for being here. Uh, wonderful to have them. And Gabby will be with us next time to discuss Horror of Fang Rock. So that'll be cool. And until then, I'm Kelvin. I'm Joshua. And I'm Pat. And we're all saying, Get off my world! I was sweating over this for hours. No, no, yeah. I got to just say, no Rutan's disc, though? I feel like there should be a Rutan's disc track. A Rutan's disc track. I was so focused. That's a good sign. He's engaged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was just so focused in the, in the world of the Invasion of Time specifically. I am engaged because I was thinking now, like, maybe it would be cool to have a song called... Janie's actually worried. <laughs> no. She's like, not another ten months of my life. Because I was thinking... I was thinking it'd be great to write a song called The Walls Are Made of Lead But Look Like Wheels Somehow. <laughs> and like that would be the, the sort of ballad, right? The walls are made of lead, yet look I, like I wheels I do like that they somehow. have that one little bit of artistic interpretation to his directive. <laughs> I want the walls made of pure lead. Okay, but is it cool if we do this like wagon wheel? Design? <laughs> <laughs> like, sure, sure, as long as it's as made, of lead. Lead, as as it's made of lead. I don't Okay, sorry. That's beautiful.